Hi, I'm Dr. Troni Lodog, physician, teacher, and author. Thank you for joining me for today's chat, brought to you by The Vitamin Shop. Today, I really wanted to focus on the importance of gut health and what that looks like and why it's so important to our overall health. I see so many people coming in with GI problems. I think this is an issue that's near and dear to many people's hearts. Irritable bowel syndrome disproportionately affects women, and we're seeing it on the rise. Celiac disease affects 1% of the population, but we also realize that a considerably greater number of people may have sensitivities to gluten. We have more than 120 million prescriptions for proton pump inhibitors, things that shut down stomach acid because apparently everybody has heartburn. We also have things like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis that people are dealing with, as well as the more severe forms of things like colorectal cancer. So there's no question about it. People are dealing with gut issues. And when we look at the totality of people living with these gut problems, it actually is a pretty significant number of the population. I want to talk about just a few things that might help us improve our overall gut well-being. The first thing I'd like to start with is just digestion. It's not so much what you eat, it's what you digest, assimilate, and eliminate. This all has to be working just top-notch. One of my concerns is this growing prescribing habit for proton pump inhibitors, drugs that are designed to shut down stomach acid. Now, there is very little question in my mind that up to a third of people who are prescribed these truly need them. They have severe reflux and regurgitation, which is causing damage to the esophagus and could eventually even lead to a Barrett's or an esophageal cancer. So I don't want to make light of that. But we know from the data that up to two-thirds of people who take these long-term don't need to be on them. Stomach acid is crucially important all of our lives, especially when we're young. Proteins are principally digested in the stomach. So most of the protein you eat in your diet is digested in the stomach, much less in the small intestine, where fats and carbohydrates and that are a lot of their digestion takes place. So what happens if you shut off stomach acid in a three-month-old baby with colic? I want to remind you one of the fastest-growing segments of PPI prescribing is in children and many in infants under the age of two. So you shut off stomach acid, and now that protein is not as well digested. What is it that people are allergic to? They're allergic to proteins inside of food. I am concerned that through poor digestion and through poor acid production and through the suppression of acid that we're now starting at a very young age and then moving all the way up through elder years, that this may be in part related to the increasing number of food allergies we're seeing in the public. You need stomach acid. Stomach acid protects us from foodborne ailments. It protects us from pneumonia. It protects us from 
developing things like food allergies, especially when we're young. So I'm a strong advocate for trying to find ways around suppressing stomach acid when at all possible. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I love for a healthy digestive tract is the use of bitter herbs. Now, people used to eat a lot more bitters in their diet. So they would eat chard, and they would eat dandelion greens, and they would have these very bitter greens that came up in the spring, and they would consume these as part of their diet. Well, what happens when you consume things that are bitter? It stimulates stomach acid production. It primes the pancreas to start making and releasing all of those good digestive enzymes that you need to break down fats and carbohydrates and everything. And it stimulates bile release by the gallbladder, which is one of the big ones to help you not only with regular stooling, but also to help really digest that fat. And it's also one of the ways we get rid of cholesterol. So bitters are a really important part of the diet. Unfortunately, many people don't eat a lot of bitter foods anymore. They're really drawn to sweet or salty or sour. There are herbal bitters available in the marketplace, which I use actually for a lot of my patients, where they're coming in with sort of just the indigestion problems, right? It's like, I just kind of feel bloated, and they've already been to the doctor, and there's no diagnosis, right? They just either have some irritable bowel, or they just get bloated and distended easy, and they've already been evaluated. I tell them, hey, why don't you try some herbal bitters? And you take these before the main meal of your day, which is usually dinner. I tell them to try it every night before dinner. You have to taste it, so you can't take these in a capsule. These have to be tasted. These are usually liquids that are available. And I tell them, I want you to try this 15 to 20 minutes before you eat your meal. And let's do this for six weeks and see if we notice any changes. I have to tell you, not everyone, but at least eight out of every 10 people I have ever done this with in more than 30 years of using this have come back and said, oh my gosh, it's like, I can't believe how much better my digestion is. I'm having better bowel movements. I don't have all this bloating after I eat in the meal. I don't have to push myself back from the table and undo my belt. And a lot of people weren't actually eating a lot of food. They just, the foods that they were eating, they weren't digesting very well. I am a big fan of bitters. I really like bitters, and I encourage these over digestive enzymes. I know a lot of people like digestive enzymes. Uh, Many clinicians recommend them for people to sort of help with digesting of your food. Now, while I think you could take a digestive enzyme that you could use so you can digest milk, you can use lactase so that you can then drink milk or enjoy dairy. I think for specific uses, they can be important. But I actually think for broader just digestive health, using bitters can be really powerful. So include more bitters in your diet, a variety of bitters in your diet. Or if that is not working for you or you don't like that, consider using some bitter herbs to enhance your digestion. When we move a little further down, when we start getting into the small intestine and the large intestine, we begin to really look more at what we call our microbiome, which is the sum total of all of the bacteria that dwell within our gut. This is so important for our well-being. When I went through medical school, we never even talked about this. It was never even a part of the discussion. And now there's so much about the microbiome, about probiotics, about gut bacteria and health. It is huge. One of the things that we know now is that our gut bacteria are partly inherited from our parents. 
we get part of our blueprint or part of our microbiome structure from our parents, predominantly our mother. But these are also strongly affected by our diet, our lifestyle, the way we are born, fed, and our environment. Many of you know I was a midwife before I was a physician. Pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding and early childhood, these you know, are near and dear topics for me. And of course, 97% of pregnancy are generally low risk, and midwives do a wonderful job of catching these babies and being a part of this wonderful process that a woman and her partner goes through. But today, we are seeing more and more children being born by cesarean section. Roughly one in three babies today are born by cesarean. Whereas we know in an otherwise healthy society where women have access to cesareans if needed, that that number should be much closer to one in 10. The cesarean section rates are on the rise in this country, and in some parts of the country and in some hospitals, it's more like one in every two births. What is the impact on that, on a person's health, on the baby's health? What I would say first, if the mom needs a cesarean section for the health of mom and the health of baby, obviously we want there to be a cesarean because that's the prime importance. But then we don't stop to think, well, if we had to do a cesarean, what should we be doing now for the baby to ensure that the baby is going to get all of the good maternal bacteria that they're not now getting? The way nature sort of planned it is we go through labor, the water breaks, we come down through the mother's womb and through the vaginal canal, and we are bathed in her bacteria. We're bathed, our skin is, it gets up in our nose, we swallow it, and we get our mother's microbiome. We get her bacteria. We get part of who she is, and that's what colonizes our skin and our GI tract. Then if she puts us to her breast, the bifidobacterium that lined the ducts where the milk comes through now is also given to us on a regular basis, which then feeds our gut bacteria and really helps ensure our health. So the way nature planned it, a vaginal birth followed by breastfeeding was really the way we kept sort of an optimal GI. Now, many babies are born by cesarean section or moms are given intrapartum antibiotics for something called group B strep. And these are all altering the ability of that baby to get mom's healthy bacteria. As a matter of fact, babies that are born by cesarean section, they actually do not acquire her bacteria. They acquire bacteria which is more consistent with what we find on the skin and in the environment. Even if a mom should breastfeed after having a cesarean section, it takes roughly five to six years for that baby to get the full kind of adult complement of gut bacteria, where in a breastfed baby born vaginally, it's closer to 18 months. We know babies that are born by cesarean section have a higher risk for cow's allergies, for other types of allergies, for celiac, as well as for asthma. There are consequences, and we believe that part of this might be able to be compensated for by ensuring a way of getting the maternal bacteria to the baby. So you may have been hearing things like fecal transplant or vaginal transplants. 
For instance, there was a study done where they took moms who had to have a cesarean section, and they took basically like a gauze, if you would. They rubbed that inside of the mother's vagina, and then when the baby was born, they took that and rubbed that on the baby's face and the nose, the mouth, and on the skin. And they actually believed that this was extremely beneficial to the babies. When we look out 18 and 24 months, with seeing fewer allergies in those babies that had it done compared to those babies that were still at high risk for allergies, but were just born by cesarean and no microbial transfer was done. I think we're going to see in the future that this has become much more important, and that we're going to look for ways to really optimize that baby's start in the world. Even if they should start by cesarean section, or if mom has to be given antibiotics, or if the mom chooses not to breastfeed, this is the sort of natural way of things and how they happened. The next big thing that comes along is antibiotics. This is hard to tease out because many of these babies, as I just said, who were born in this fashion, then end up with allergies and asthma and allergic to cow's milk. So they're going to get more ear infections and respiratory stuff as kids, which means more antibiotics. There is a wonderful book called *The Missing Microbe* by Martin Blazer. It's a fabulous book written by a professor who's been involved with the Human Microbiome Project here in the United States, and he makes an interesting case. For the microbiome, early antibiotic use, and obesity. Now, stick with me for just a second here. Basically, what he outlines is that in animals, we have found that use of antibiotics, especially early in their life, leads to faster growth. So the animals get bigger, fatter, faster. Well, then when he looked at the data, and their group looked at the data of Children who got a lot of antibiotics early in life versus kids who didn't, there was a strong correlation with those children having a greater incidence of being overweight and obese compared to the kids that did not get those antibiotics, even when you accounted for lots and lots of variables. So, in the book, he raises the question: Is part of what happens when you give a lot of antibiotics to a child? This alteration of the microbiome does it actually set the stage for weight gain? Interesting question. We don't know the answer, but I will tell you this: the fact that by the time an American, somebody born here in the United States, reaches 21 years of age, the fact that they've had 17 rounds of antibiotics is deeply concerning, and of course, it's going to alter that. Individual's microbiome because you're going to kill off all kinds of good bacteria, as well as bad. So this notion of antibiotic use is one that's also concerning. And for me, you know, as a little side note, not only is this excessive use of antibiotics, especially for viral infections for which there's no data that there's any benefit for the human. But also the consequences when we excrete those antibiotics into wastewater or into the septic, you know, that goes out into the soil. Those antibiotics then create antibiotic-resistant genes, which bacteria transfer to one another, and we just see more and more antibiotic resistance. So this is a big problem, and it could be in part the explosion that we have seen. 
in weight gain and obesity, many experts believe that simply the calories alone cannot account for all of it. And, and you know, this is not a talk on obesity, but I would also say there are many obesogens in the environment that disrupt the endocrine system that also make us more likely to get heavy. So it's probably a constellation of things. But that microbiome and how we start our world off from birth to the way we're fed when we're young to then how many antibiotics we're given in childhood may have a much bigger impact on us than we realize. I mentioned the missing microbe from the Human Microbiome Project. This is part of the National Institute of Health. And I tell you, in the next 10 years or so, we're going to just have a whole lot more information. We're going to be a whole lot smarter about how to really help us have the healthiest microbiome that we can. But in the meantime, what are some of the things that we do know that we can do? There are some interesting things going on around the world, including the Gut Project, which is taking place in the United Kingdom. At King's College in London, they have set up this whole research area where they've got people in the population for a very small fee sending in little fecal samples, so samples of their stool, and then they're analyzing them. And what they want to do is just get so many stool samples that they can begin to make correlations. They can begin to connect your microbiome with your diet and with health, etc. So that's coming out with some really interesting stuff, including the fact that our microbiome in many ways is almost as unique as our fingerprint. Think about that. You and I, we may have very similar diets. We may eat very much the same foods, but our microbiome will not be the same. It is unique to us. There's some commonalities that we all have and some variations, but it's unique. Our microbiome is unique. One thing that has changed dramatically that we know from like 50 years ago is that the microbial diversity inside of us has declined by roughly 30%. This is shocking because diversity is the spice of life. Truly, this is what keeps us healthy is that microbial divergence and diversity down there. And the fact that we've really narrowed that diversity by roughly a third is significant One of the reasons we think that this has happened in part is that a lot of junk food, a lot of processed foods actually decrease the diversity in our gut. In a junk food diet, there's like certain bacteria that indicate good health, that when you put people on a junk food diet, you can have 50% reduction in just 10 days. It's kind of shocking. This is part of the work that's happening, that's being done. It seems that a number of the compounds and chemicals and emulsifiers and things that we find in junk food really kill off good bacteria, allowing the bad ones to flourish. Who knew? It was just amazing. Some of the other things that they've noted, if you want to really enhance the good bacteria inside of you, Eating a diet rich in fiber and fermented foods is really important. So look at sauerkraut and miso soup and kefir. All of these fermented foods really encourage the growth of our good bacteria, the things that we really want in there. And fiber is what these bacteria feed on, which is one of the concerns that I have today with many people moving and eliminating entire food groups. I know many people have gone low, low, low carb 
And as long as you're getting lots of beans and vegetables and fruits and things like this that have a lot of fiber in them, you're probably going to be okay. But one of the ways that we have traditionally gotten fiber in the diet was also through whole grains, and we know that many people are diminishing their consumption of that for a variety of reasons. We know that trying to get off the junk food and eating food as whole as possible helps gut diversity. I was particularly happy that the fact that modest amounts of alcohol actually boost bacterial diversity. So having my glass of wine at night is not only good for my heart and good for my brain and good for other things, but just a small amount of alcohol can actually boost bacterial diversity. This may be one of the other reasons that the Mediterranean diet has many of the benefits that it does. It's not just that it's alcohol and lipids or cardiovascular system, it actually may be working by enhancing the diversity of our microbiome. I find that fascinating. One of the other things that they note in the gut project were things like all the vegetables are very good, but the best are those fiber root veggies. Things like Jerusalem artichokes, globe artichokes, leeks, onions, garlic, those are the biggies. This is another thing that I look at. The Mediterranean diet is really high in garlic and onions. This is a big part of their diet, as well as leeks. These allium vegetables seem to be very, very good for the microbiome. This may be another piece of like that Mediterranean diet that accounts for some of its benefits. Nuts, seeds, dark chocolate, green tea, coffee also have been shown to boost bacteria. So a lot of these good things that we do in our diet are good for our microbiome. Last but not least, I want to just share intermittent fasting is a topic I'm very interested in these days. I like this whole notion of restricting how many hours you eat, right? The more we extend that overnight fast, the better it can be for our health. So this is intriguing to me. And one of the things that was recommended to one of the patients that was being followed by this gut project, a woman who was obese and she didn't have a very good microbiome, they actually suggested that she do intermittent fasting. They had something I was not familiar with originally. It was called the 5-2 diet. On two days per week, you eat just 500 calories. I had never heard of this. I'm very familiar with intermittent fasting because there's a lot of data suggesting that if you extend the overnight fast, that that's actually very healthy for the body. In this case, they had recommended this 5-2 diet twice a week, just eating 500 calories and condensing that to a small time of the day. And what they said was that the studies show that when you extend the overnight fast, it gives the bacteria a chance to rest and that it increases the diversity of your microbes, that this is a very healthy thing to do and that we make more healthy compounds that let us also lose weight or gain less weight, however you want to look at it. This fascinates me because this intermittent fasting, we have a lot of research from people who observe Ramadan. They don't eat from sunrise to sunset. They fast all day, and then they break their fast at night. They have this extended fasting period, and what we know is that studying people who go through Ramadan, that from the beginning to the middle to the end, many things improve, blood sugar, cholesterol, mood, etc. And part of me wonders if this is in part due to the alteration that we're seeing in the microbiome. It's an important thing for us to question because 
Today, it's like eat three meals a day and multiple snacks. Eat, 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 eat. Is that really the best advice? Is it? I don't know. My husband and I have started doing more intermittent fasting. We do all of our chores in the morning, do the horses, the chickens. We muck the stalls and do a short hike before we come back. So we've done about three hours of activity before we ever eat anything for breakfast, and then mostly a protein kind of breakfast with a little fat. And it's interesting for both of us that just the sort of feeling that we're less hungry throughout the day, we're not eating as much. I think this intermittent fasting, there's something there. I don't think it's a good idea for very young children or certainly during pregnancy, but I think there's something to be learned from it. And I think one of the benefits that we may be seeing is this diversity in our microbiome. Lots of good things you can do. You may be asking about probiotics. Should you be taking probiotics? I think we're going to know a lot more about probiotics in the years to come. I certainly think that in addition to the things that we've talked about, wholesome diet, modest amounts of alcohol if you don't abstain from alcohol, adding more onions and garlics and leeks to the diet, making sure we're getting lots of high fiber, some nuts and seeds, some green teas and coffee, dark chocolate, all of those kinds of things, fermented foods, all of these really promote good, healthy bacteria. I would say, in addition, probiotics may be useful, particularly if you have things for which science has actually shown there to be benefit for. There is a website called usprobioticguide.com that actually allows you to go in and sort of put your gender and then your interest. Were you interested in the research on probiotics for eczema or for allergies or for irritable bowel syndrome? And once you put it in, it will put a little section up for adults and one for kids, which is nice. They will go through the products that contain those bacteria that were shown to be clinically effective in clinical studies. They also rank the evidence by one, two, and three, one being the strongest level of evidence for those strains of bacteria. Don't be surprised if some of your favorite brands are not on there. They don't list every brand, but they give you a good idea of which bacteria to look for and how much. The studies were done on 5 billion colony-forming units, 5 billion bacteria of Lactobacillus plantarum, then you would know that that might be something you want to look for in whatever brand you're purchasing. I think it can be a very useful guide. Probiotics may turn out to be one of our chief supplements once we figure out exactly what we need, that may actually be very personalized. In the future, you may know exactly based on your stool sample which probiotic might be best for you for your health. Last thing I want to just mention is that we do believe that having these healthy bacteria in our GI system is very important for maintaining the barrier integrity of the intestine. If we have too much intestinal permeability, meaning that we're leaking stuff out that actually shouldn't be getting out into our bloodstream or into our immune system, 80% of the immune system, 80% of the immune system lies right outside our GI tract. 
makes good sense because our food wasn't very healthy. There was lots of bacteria and fungus and mold and all kinds of things that we would eat thousands of years ago when we ate our meals and our food. And so, having a good immune system there was really important for keeping us from dying from foodborne infections. Because of so many of the things that we do that disrupt this healthy ecosystem inside of us, we're seeing more intestinal permeability, or what people call leaky gut syndrome. Stanford has been doing a lot of research on the microbiome. Justin Sonnenberg's group out there, and some of the things that we are beginning to see now is that people with very low fiber diets and poor bacterial diversity in their microbiome. That may be correlated to some of the symptoms of IBS that we see, like diarrhea, brain fog, mood swings, even some of the obesity that we're seeing. I think there's a lot of reasons to really invest in eating a good diet and making sure that we're getting the things in our diet that feed our good bacteria, and possibly really looking at the role of probiotics and prebiotics in our diet. And which ones of those might be useful? Our family, we use kind of a broad-based probiotic that has a variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium in them. We do this as just part of our normal, healthy diet. And until somebody can give me greater guidance, I think this is probably just useful for us—a part of our healthy diet that we keep. So we've talked a bit about the importance of digestion and elimination, and the importance of that microbiome. And I don't know, maybe Hippocrates was really onto something. Maybe all disease does begin in the gut, or at least diseases may be made worse by a poor functioning gut. I think that there's so much that we can do that's consistent with a healthy diet. And healthy foods, and then the addition of things like digestive bitters to help with our digestion and elimination, our normal digestion, our normal elimination, and then using probiotics and prebiotics to help support our healthy diet to give us a good, healthy microbiome. I think that these are some strategies that we can use right now today to improve the health of our gut. Last but not least, I would tell you that the gut is extremely responsive to stress. That's why we actually use our language to talk about how we feel emotions in our stomach. I got butterflies in my stomach. Felt like I got kicked in the stomach. My stomach's all in knots. Many people experience a lot of their stress in their gut. This aggravates irritable bowel syndrome. It aggravates. Abdominal kinds of discomfort. Some of the symptoms that children come in with often are due to this is where they're holding all of their emotion. So I would just tell you that part of good gut health is not just eating a great diet and eating foods that can promote good microbiome or even adding probiotics and prebiotics. I think a part of our gut is also acknowledging that managing our stress. Has also a lot to do with keeping our gut working in tip-top shape. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I hope that you found some things that may be useful for you or your family. And I want to thank you for giving up 
part of your very busy day to spend time with us, and I hope you will continue to fill your life with things that inspire and nourish you so that you can thrive every day. Until next time.